Before we get started, a quick disclosure. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. With that, hello and welcome to the Range of Capital podcast. This is a 15-minute long podcast, and the clock starts now. I'm Andrew Walker, a portfolio manager at Rangely. With me, as always, is my co-host and Rangely's founder, Chris Demuth. It is Monday, April 10th, and today we're going to start by talking about Netflix's price increase and a potential Netflix-Disney mega merger. And then we're going to move on to talk on to talking about activism at one of our favorite pharmaceutical companies, DepoMed. So, Chris, why don't you kick it off? Let's talk about the uh, Netflix price increase. Netflix is increasing their prices. Customers currently pay uh, $7.99. Very succinct, Chris. So uh, why don't I provide a little bit more details? I wasn't done, but go. (laughs) It's just Netflix is increasing their prices. Uh, So Netflix is – the big headline is Netflix is increasing prices from $7.99 a month to $9.99 a month. It's a little bit misleading because what happened is Netflix increased their price in May 2014. But if you paid the old price, they grandfathered you in for uh, two years. Uh, But the price increase, even though it's a grandfathered in situation, it's going to hit a lot of people. UBS was estimating 17 million users, or about 37% of subs, will have their prices raised. Uh, UBS did a survey, and 41% of respondents said they would cancel if prices went up. And in reality, UBS thinks only 3 to 4% Mm -hmm. of users will cancel. So that's what's happening. But Chris, Netflix being able to raise prices from $8 to $10 per month and have maybe 3 or 4% of their users cancel – what does that tell you about the Netflix business? Well, I should say we're not shareholders, and nope. it, but, but, but it says it's a great business. I mean, I, it, being able to sustain price increases, um, you know, whenever we look at deals and antitrust issues, we always say, well, we don't want to get caught, but uh, we don't really want the inverse of an antitrust problem either. We don't mm-hmm. want to say, you know, we have no pricing power whatsoever. <laughs> we want enough pricing power, but not so much that you get caught. And uh, this shows that they have some, especially if UBS is right, as I believe they are, that it can be sustained. Warren Buffett's thing was, if you, if you need to go hold a prayer meeting and beg every time you want to take prices off by 1%, you're probably in a bad meeting, mm-hmm. a, a bad business. But if you can kind of take reasonable price increases whenever you want without too much worry or without disrupting volume, it's probably a good business. And I wanted to point out that even though Netflix is raising prices from you know more than a 20, 25% increase, actually, from $8 a month to $10 a month, it actually still looks like a pretty big bargain to me. HBO's standalone streaming business, uh, you can get that for $15 a month. Stars, which we're invested in, costs about $9 per month. Uh, Netflix has a huge amount of original content that you can't view anywhere else, and now it's only $10 per month. Uh, I've been really impressed by their ability to release great TV shows. Uh, last year of Rotten Tomatoes' top 10 TV shows, Netflix released two of them. Uh, they released 600 hours of original programming per year. That's a huge number. HBO doesn't even come close to that. They're trying to get close to that in response to uh, it, the competitive pressure from Netflix, but it, Netflix is the winner right now. So, Chris, as you said, we don't have a position in Netflix. But let's talk about, you know, this price increase shows that Netflix is a great business. Let's talk about valuing Netflix. I'll let you kick it off. Oh, so we need to kick it off. I'll kick it off then. So as I said, uh, Value Netflix, we don't own the stock. It's uh, high growth, high multiple stock. It's not really our type thing. But as we're going to talk about in a second, we think there's rumors Disney and Netflix might look at a merger. Very far-fetched rumors. So it's worth thinking about. Netflix is currently valued at about $45 billion. Uh, last Last 12 months, EBITDA is less than $500 million. They're free cash flow negative, so a lot of value investors look at the stock and say, oh man, that's worthless. Like, why would suckers pay that crazy multiples? 
But to me, a lot of those losses is because they're investing so much in programming and in loss-making international businesses that will eventually make money. And I kind of look at HBO and I say HBO has 49 million subscribers. Mm -hmm. They did 5.6 billion in revenue and about 1.9 billion in EBIT in 2015. If I look at Netflix with 70 million U.S. subscribers, uh, they do $6.2 billion in U.S. streaming revenue in 2015. And I kind of look at them and say, why can't Netflix hit HBO's revenue per user? Why can't they have the similar margins to uh, HBO? And when you kind of think about what would happen if Netflix went to $15 per mm-hmm. month for their users and got to HBO's uh, margins, they'd, be about, they'd do about $4.5 billion in EBIT just in the U.S. business. So you'd be buying them at 10x kind of EBIT for the U.S. business, get the international business thrown in for free. Now, we don't, we're not really growth investors. We don't do that. But when you look at that and think about Netflix's competitive advantage, how good the business is, they're really the first mover in streaming. It looks very interesting, and it starts to look interesting at that multiple at this price. It's it's plausible. Um, we're certainly not shorted either, and it'll be a lot clearer to us if they can sustain the price increase as well as we think they can. Mm-hmm. Exactly. All right, so I've talked a lot. Why don't you take over for the Netflix-Disney rumored merger? Sure. Um, uh, we're, we're reporting on a rumor that we're now sustaining since we wrote about this earlier <laughs> today. So, uh, so uh, uh, analysts are speculating, uh, as in we are speculating, on uh, whether Disney and Netflix would make sense to fit together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this was on Friday. An analyst over at BTIG proposed a Disney-Netflix merger, and uh, he thinks it would help with a lot of Disney's core issues. The big one is Disney last week announced that their COO is going to leave next month after 26 years at the company. And, I mean, analysts were absolutely shocked at this. Everyone thought the COO was going to be their next CEO. Their current CEO, Bob Iger, is going to retire in 2018. And now Disney, people think they have no one internally who they can promote to the CEO uh, role. Uh, You know, Disney's got some issues. ABC and ESPN are two of their major assets, and both of them uh, kind of don't look that great in a world moving to streaming. ESPN drastically overpaid for sports rights a few years ago because they thought their subs would continue to go up. They've gone down in a cord-cutting world. ABC faces cord-cutting and streaming issues. And without a CEO, Netflix would give uh, Bob Iger a natural CEO succession candidate. Uh, Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix. So, Chris, interesting thought. Do you think it would happen? What would the mechanics look like? Um, Well, probably not. Uh... (laughs) Almost definitely not. (laughs) But uh, but no, they, uh, it, would, it would be a big deal for Disney. It's one of several that we've looked at, uh, and uh, we'll we'll see. Yeah. So Netflix uh, right now, their market cap, as we mentioned, is about forty five billion. Disney's market cap's one hundred sixty billion. Their enterprise value is about one hundred seventy billion. So Disney would probably have to pay about fifty five billion uh, for Netflix. So Netflix would probably be a stock for stock deal. Netflix would probably take over twenty five percent of Disney. Uh, it looks crazy expensive, but Disney does have a, a history of making these crazy expensive deals work. Uh, I was doing some work today, and they bought Pixar for over $7 billion in 2006. That was 13% of Disney, and people at the do- time said, this is way too expensive. What are they doing? In hindsight, it looks fantastic. Bought Marvel for $4 billion in 2009. Again, people at the time thought that was way too much money. In hindsight, one of the cheapest deals of the of this century. Mm-hmm. Disney and Netflix already have some partnerships. Netflix makes TV shows on the characters. Netflix will license Disney's films uh, starting this year. So you can kind of see the rationale. 
But I, I don't really think strategically it makes sense. I think the Pixar deal was good. I think the Marvel deal was fantastic. I think you need to sort of coddle the talent when you're talking about content. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about distribution, I just believe in contracts. You know, when you look at all the good sides of a Disney Netflix combination, you don't need to be within the same firm to do a lot of the good stuff. Exactly. If you said, wow, we could imagine all the things we could do with ESPN on Netflix. Well, I believe both of these companies have uh, a legal team. Yep. And they have attorneys who, if you told them to put something together, they could put together a piece of paper that, in fact, both legally and technologically could do this and all the good things without Disney shareholders having to be, pay a big premium. A hundred percent. It I think in the past, Disney's been buying brands with Netflix. As you say, they're buying distribution. Why not just do a legal deal? Uh, from my standpoint, another rumored acquisition candidate is Electronic Arts, the video game company. That would make more sense. It, I think it makes more sense because you can buy the Electronic Arts video game company brands, and then Disney can make movies out of them, license, make uh, toys, put them in the theme parks. I think that kind of makes a little more a, sense. A little gossip on the EA side. Whenever they've looked at buying uh, deals themselves that are particularly violent or licentious, they've always been careful about maintaining kind of Disney-esque standards for yeah. themselves so that they've never kind of put themselves culturally outside of what Disney could buy. I, I believe uh, Electronic Arts for a long time they were rumored to buy Take Two, Take two. who is the maker of Grand, Grand Theft, Theft Auto. Auto. Not I, Disney. There's no Grand Theft Auto within Disney World. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very true. But the the sticking point was always made a ton of set, sense operationally. But the if Grand you Theft Auto, bought Grand yeah. Theft Auto, you can't get bought by Disney anymore. Very true. Full disclosure: My wife was a hostess at Fantasyland when I first met her. But that's not <laughs> nearly as uh, uh, what it sounds. It's just one. The I was Disney about to say, I, I know Elizabeth and Michael are not, so I'll just let Fantasyland <laughs> slip right through. Uh, so we're going to turn to Depot Med, but before we get there, a quick request. If you like this podcast, please be sure to follow us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you already follow us, please be sure to rate us. It means a lot to us and encourages us to keep taping them. So Chris, let's turn our thoughts to Depot Med. Sure. Uh, Starbird acquired about 10% of the shares over the past few months. Last week, they delivered a letter to the board and announced that they would look to replace the whole board. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a situation we followed for over for almost a year at this point. Extremely interesting. We've held shares for a while. Why don't you take us through what makes the situation so interesting? Sure. So uh, this was a target of an unsolicited bid. I don't love the phrase hostile bid, but mm-hmm. as people say hostile bid, by Horizon. Um, the timing on the Target's successful corporate defense uh, was horrific, as it turned out. Mm-hmm. You know, these were uh, this was a team that uh, maintained its independence right before a cataclysmically uh, difficult time in specialty pharma. Of course, it was even worse for Horizon mm-hmm. in all the substantive ways. But as it turns out, they should have said, we have only one demand, and that demand is cash. 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 As we're going to talk about, cash solves a lot of problems. So Horizon last year offered to buy DepoMed for $33 per share, and DepoMed said, no, Horizon, we refuse to negotiate with you whatsoever. So Horizon tried to call a special meeting to force Depot Meds mm-hmm. to replace Depot Meds board and force them to engage in negotiations. And Depot Med responded by suing Horizon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's kind of complicated to say how that played out because uh, Depot Med, in hindsight, it was going to be $33 per share in Horizon stock. Horizon stock has cratered as they've got a lot in common with uh, Valiant. 
Their stock is cratered, so it wouldn't have looked good there. But Depot Med shares haven't done that good either. They were offered $33 per share, and they're currently trading around $17. So it's tough to say you know, how that rejection worked. In hindsight, as you said, it would have been better for management to say, all right, Horizon, $33 is great, but we wanted an all cash. We want no no share risk. Or if you were the target to do what uh, Mark Cuban did at broadcast.com, which is take the deal and then sell, sell the next Sell day. the stock immediately, as soon as you're legally allowed to. So Starbirds come in and they said, Depot Med's board, uh, you've got great assets here, but you have done a horrific job of capital allocation. And in failing to engage with Horizon, you've entrenched yourself. So what do you think about the Starbird, uh, the Starbird arguments, and how do you think this plays out? Well, they put together a thoughtful letter, mm-hmm. uh, and they are also maintaining their optionality. So this is not a specific uh, granular case that Jeff Smith and his team mm-hmm. at Starbird is making. Uh, it is a general view of this company's management team. And I would say that we're being a little careful at this point in terms of being open-minded and listening to all sides. Uh, but, uh, but, but Starbird has put together a thoughtful case. It would be a very, very high standard any management team would have to maintain to be able to compete with their plan. Yep. So Starbird, what they did was they were buying shares up and uh, DepoMed released their proxy statement, which is what they sent to shareholders when shareholders need to vote on uh, the annual meeting, new directors. And Starbird saw some things they didn't, Starbird saw some things they didn't like in there that would further entrench management. So they said, hey, we were still buying shares, formulating a plan. But we can't let management entrench any further. So we need to run a proxy just so that they can't further entrench. Uh, how this plays out, it, go ahead. It's an unusual circumstance that I think if you were a shareholder and a neutral shareholder, a neutral arbiter who wanted to catch their breath and stand still needs to side with Starbird mm-hmm. because it's the current incumbent management team that would like to further aggregate control. Yep without paying a control premium. It's Jeff Smith and Starbird that has the kind of position that would allow holders to maintain the status quo, if that makes sense. It it 100% makes sense. And in general, one thing is, if you turn down a a big premium offer from someone else and your share price goes down 50%, kind of the onus is on you to prove that you should have turned it down. So I don't think the hurdle is too high for Starbird to kind of prove that you should side with them. But we will see. Uh, Management's done some great stuff. The new Central launch has gone great. They generate a ton of cash. It's definitely a valuable company. Uh, Chris, I think the end game here is probably a sale to a bigger company. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? I think so. You know, we have less of the kind of tax arbitrage than we would have had Mm -hmm. before um, the treasuries come back with our most recent round of changes on tax inversions. Uh, But nonetheless, even X all of that... Uh, it is a uh, it is a company that you could it's analyzable. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are strategic acquirers that could take out costs, and when you're talking about pharma, you always have uh, salesmen who are less than at capacity. You know, if you're mm-hmm. a salesman and a Buick and eight states you have to cover, you always have some room in your trunk for a few more drugs. Yep. And uh, so I look at these, and when I think of M and A, I think of cost cutting. I mean, that's that's what works in M mm-hmm. and A, and you can always do that. There are big acquirers. Also, it's not as sensitive as other industries to the daily in and out of the credit market because the big acquirers 
have so much cash. Yep. Yep. Uh, they, they they need to buy companies like this all the time. It's not whether you buy a depot med, but four months after you buy depot med, where's the next depot med? Yep. So just turning back a little bit to this uh, strategic rationale here, depot med's big product is Nucentia, which yep. has about. 1.5% of the pain pill market. Uh, you know, Oxycontin is kind of the big player there. And anyone who buys them is going to say, hey, Nucentia has been taking share mm-hmm. for a couple different reasons. It's getting promoted properly. It has less, uh, it has less abuse characteristics to it. And they're going to say, this is growing at, this is growing huge. Uh, it's a potential billion dollar franchise. But what if we can take it from 1.5% of the market Deepamed thinks they can get it to two. What if we take it to three? Like, think how much synergies we can get there. Also, for off-label usage, if you invest in specialty pharma, you can take three or four Nucentia in the morning as a hedge to kind of protect yourself <laughs> from the pain associated. Not only is this podcast for entertainment purposes only, we are not medical professionals. So please uh, see your doctor before t- taking Chris's advice there. <laughs> Uh, I think Horizon, Allergan, and Endo all could make sense as potential acquirers. There's a couple other rumors. Horizon's not that interested in coming back. But uh, we think it's Depot Med's kind of worth 20-ish per share as a standalone, 30-ish per share in a deal, plus or minus a couple dollars on both sides. And we think a deal's the most likely outcome here. Anything? I, I think so. I, I would just add that, uh, at least historically, as an ARB, uh, the ARBs are the worst sellers in the world mm-hmm. when you have a very specific, and I really would say this happens in the investment world between any specific strategies. When somebody leaves their strategy, they own it for a specific reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, they kind of say, uh, well, now that it's not our strategy, let's forget everything we ever knew and sell with no price sensitivity whatsoever, frequently because it's outside of their mandate. So when deals break, I mean, I just think broken merger ARB is better than real merger ARB. Mm-hmm. And this one broke, I believe, to a price well less than it's worth, even if nothing goes right from here. Great, great points. All right, so that's all the time we have for today. A uh, quick reminder as I drop my pen, if you like this podcast, please be sure to follow us and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. Before we hit our disclosures, just a reminder that our podcast now has an email address. If you have any feedback or if there's any topic you'd like us to discuss on this podcast, please be sure to email us at podcast at rangelycapital.com. Our disclosures, I am Long Depot and Stars. Chris, I believe you're Long both of them. Anything else? I believe that is it. Yep, Depot and Stars for both of us. Nothing else. Uh, we will talk to you guys again on Wednesday.